I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. This week, I'm joined by my partner in crime, TJ Abood. TJ and I have been working together since almost the beginning of Access Ventures. He oversees our investments, and we work together to better align our mission values with, with every asset class that we deploy. He's also the architect of our venture strategy that emerged in late 2018 around the blockchain. And we are joined this week by Robbie Greenfield, the founder and CEO of Emerging Impact, and a person at the literal center of the blockchain and social impact space for the past decade. A man that literally walks the walk. In fact, he called in from Mexico, where he's been for the past couple of months, working on an exciting project. You'll hear a transition in the audio halfway in, so thanks for sticking with us throughout. We didn't want you to miss out on this exciting conversation. If this is your first time diving into blockchain or you're quite familiar and active in the space, this conversation around activism, social and environmental impact, adoption, and what it will take to do this at scale are all in this week's episode of More Than Profit. Well, today, I was actually going to say a rare treat, but it seems like season two has been full of, uh, full of special moments. But today we're going to have an opportunity to talk a lot about blockchain. Um, I think for some people it can be confusing. Um, but I really wanted to start with the man on my screen whom I have known the longest, TJ Abood. We've actually been working together for six and a half years now, something like that. Um, yeah, about that. Yeah. So I think sometimes when people look at Access Ventures, they one are confused about what we do. Uh, but, but behind that, they're actually somewhat confused about who does what. Um, and so I think for, for this conversation, I'd like to kind of start off with, with you a little bit. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, what it is you do here at Access Ventures um, and kind of couple that with like what drives you, like why do you do it? Six and a half years, long time, um, mm -hmm. but super passionate about the work. So what do you do uh, to move the mission uh, forward at Access Ventures? Sure thing. Um, so my role as an investment partner is I, I manage our endowment. Um, and so it's fun. I get to work in every single asset class, um, both public markets, private markets. And then uh, we have our own internal investments, we make direct investments into uh, different companies that we um, feel strongly about that, that fit our mission. And so why do I do it? Um, let's see, we'll have to go back about 10 years, but <laughs> I, uh, my background is in private equity and uh, did a roll up strategy of, um, uh, home care. And so this is, um, you know, unskilled, uh, caring for the elderly and indigent. And, um, I, I just had a moment where I saw us collecting outrageous, uh, profits. However, we, um, we had to keep our employees at minimum wage. And in some cases there were opportunities to pay less than minimum wage. And although private equity is a great industry. It's uh, certainly good for the career, just really difficult um, to mesh with my values. So I uh, left and um, not too long after that, joined you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I think, I think what's interesting is, um, you know, I'm the managing partner, but you're the investment partner. And so like one of the ways we're structured, I think it's just kind of helpful in these moments to kind of clarify is like you and I, we're, we're a team. 
you know, and, and in fact, if anybody really wants money, they should be talking to you, not me. Right. So, <laughs> so hear that you heard that here first, but like, so typically like if somebody comes to AV, I kick them to you and Moses and the team to kind of to diligence and to assess because you and I work closely together uh, on multiple fronts, but that's really, that's really your bailiwick to kind of drive the investment strategy, to make decisions, to help us think about how to align our corpus, our endowment in multi-asset class differentiation with our values, with our mission. Um, and that's kind of what you think about every day, which kind of gets us to the first point, which, you know, venture has been something we've done for, for years, almost since the very beginning of Access Ventures. Just this, this desire to invest intentionally and directly into companies to support entrepreneurs at the earliest stages that had similar values and, and desires for the world. So what was the earliest strategy uh, for Access Ventures related to, to venture investing? Yeah, we, um, we have this value um, alignment and an impact mandate where our assets match um, the things that we care about and the reason we exist. And so when you make direct investments, you have a chance to um, assess the core values of a company in a way that you just can't in the public markets. And so we really enjoyed that. Um, and so when we first started, we invested around different themes. We called them area focus back then. And um, they, 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 it was a large span. It was a generalist fund, essentially. And over time, we found ourselves um, settling into something we call technology for social good. And what that is, is if we're making venture investments, we need to back companies that are highly scalable. But then what do those companies do? Who do they serve? And so we were backing companies that um, took this venture profile, this highly scalable model, and they just pointed it at communities that we cared about, that we felt were marginalized. And so that, um, that was fun. We, we've enjoyed Fund One and making those direct investments. Yeah, and, that, and so that kind of leads us to, to introducing our, our, our guest, Robbie, a little bit. Um, because couple years in to this, what you call a generalist fund or fund one, as we kind of internally call it, um, it it's difficult to run a strategy like that um, with, with a lack of expertise in a specific vertical, um, the ability to go deep, both in knowledge and expertise and experience with the entrepreneurs. And so 2017, I think it was, talk to us about how we went from this kind of broader concept of technology for social good to now focusing our venture strategy on, on the blockchain. Certainly. Um, and we enjoyed technology for social good. And, um, we, we asked ourselves, should we continue as a generalist fund or should we, um, go thematic? And, uh, ultimately thematic was best for us. We could hyper-focus on, um, one industry, become very fluent in it. And, um, we personally believe that blockchain is the technology for social good. We um, generally, we think that um, it's decentralized nature. If it can become ubiquitous, then it can be the platform by which an unknown amount of impact projects can be built and they can be built by anyone. And so we got really excited about that and we felt like that would be uh, the best use of our efforts. And when, when we kind of got started, I think it was like late 17, early 18, I think it was, we started looking at that. Um, some people are like, wait, blockchain, social good. I mean, they saw all of these kind of on-chain solutions being developed that, you know, were seemingly, uh, 
could be harmful uh, in some instances. Um, talk to me about why blockchain, you see it now in this moment as the technology for social good. Like why, why is that the thing that we're focused on? What aspect of, of blockchain? Because that's a big, big term that we'll get into. Uh, what, what makes that the technology for social good right now? Well, Robbie will have much more to speak <laughs> on this. I know uh, this will this gets us into that. So, <laughs> um, well, internally, uh, the way we think about it is um, it, it it is decentralized, and so when we look at um, the things that create mar marginalization in our society, you have to ask yourself where does that come from, and that comes from gatekeepers, people that or institutions that exclude, and so this technology fundamental to it doesn't exclude uh, whatsoever. And so we want to um, invest behind that and we want to see that uh, created. And so right now, we believe the best thing that can happen is mainstream adoption. And that's what we're investing behind. What can we uh, support that will make this technology uh, proliferate? And so that kind of takes us to Robbie. Robbie, so... You came on the scene with Access Ventures um, pretty early on in our kind of development of a strategy. So TJ, talk to us about how we got in contact with Robbie and kind of that work, uh, and which will kind of take it into the next next round of questions. Sure. Um, so when we decided to get involved, we, we need to align with um, partners that uh, match our vision. And so Blockchain for Social Impact, uh, they were the team. I think you might have been the only ones, um, uh, Robbie, at that time. And so we got involved, attended conferences, working groups, all of that. But um, at AV, we believe in something that we call one pocket investment, where we may be doing a lot of things in other parts of the organization. Um, and we want to uh, have our investment efforts speak into that and vice versa. And so we were looking at um, determinants of homelessness and we zeroed in on substance abuse disorder. And so that's when we formally engaged you and your team. Uh, you came in for a uh, design sprint. We brought together maybe 25, 30 stakeholders locally. Um, and we just sat around in a conference room for three days and talked about, okay, where can this technology be useful? And it was, it was an exciting conversation um, because there were a lot of different ways, whether it's um, helping facilitate, um, um, you know, medical notes or um, uh, uh, caseworker notes, because there's a lack of handoff. When, when someone's going from one provider to the next provider, what ultimately happens is without context, the person that they meet with just says, oh, you need to go talk to this person. And there was an outrageous statistic where someone is, is having over 20 meetings a week just to get the care that they need to overcome. And we saw that blockchain would be a great alternative if we can begin to share this information in a secure way. So you all came to town, we got to know you, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So Robbie, turning to you real quick. Um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a roller coaster. I'd love to I'd love to, before we get into the technical side, because obviously we want to get into that um, and kind of what you're working on now, because I think it's, it's really fascinating. But I want to kind of go back a little bit. What, what drives you? How did you get into this space? Um, yeah. and, and then maybe one question that's kind of a, an interesting way to kind of frame it, I think, is, is what's not on your resume 
that you that you think is important uh, for people to know about you uh, that helped kind of shape the the path forward for you into into this work that you're doing? Uh, yes, no, no, absolutely. So um, no, I can absolutely attend to that. I think one of the things that you know people probably don't know about me or is not on my resume is just a history of activism. Um, so I come from the South, from Georgia, and it's a place, even when you're young, you quickly, you know, come to know who you are and who you're not, <laughs> especially if you're a person of color. Um, and, you know, throughout my really early youth, like I became aware of like Wu-Tang Clan, Public Enemy, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, because these are things that my dad would listen to on cassette tape, right, <laughs> um, in our car. And um, I think not until, you know, I was called like the N-word multiple times, like, and this is like really, really young, when I'm playing soccer games, things like that, um, that social justice and feeling of inequity, you know, was certainly a motivator. And I wouldn't realize how to activate that in the way that I best could uh, until I got to college at University of Michigan where I got really deep into activism, um, you know, and I started to get into engineering, et cetera. So while there, um, that's when you had the shooting of Trayvon Martin, mm. right? Which I think really think has been the catalyst for what we see now during COVID in terms of the Black Lives Matter protests, et cetera, because that was really the first time where you started to see you know, in the streets protests, you know, within the last decade or so. Um, and then of course, Ferguson followed that. And, um, you know, at, at, at Michigan, it was a huge, huge deal. And we started this, you see quite regularly now, this kind of hashtag activism that materializes into, you know, real-time activism on the streets, whether it be spray painting the streets or doing stand-ins, et cetera. Um, so doing a lot of that. Um, and, you know, after that experience, you know, got to do the CNNs, the New York Times and all these different things and talk to administration and um, really, you know, to TJ's point, you know, how, how do you do this at scale, right? Because the issue is, is that for universities, you only have four years, right? And the administration's like, well, they'll be gone. <laughs> we don't have to deal with them and T minus, you know, uh, four years when they come. And, and then, you know, in, in, in the real world, I think, you know, people have jobs, especially working people who are most affected by this. Um, they can't protest every day. Um, so that's when I started to employ, you know, my engineering background as to how to sustainably, you know, support my activism. And um, the first wave of that was through, you know, blockchain technology. But at the time, you know, there really wasn't, there is no generalizable blockchain like Ethereum or others. So there really was no solution-oriented conversation around it. It really just was cryptocurrency, right? And you had now Gox and Bitcoin. So, um, you know, started on the financial end, as most people do, um, which actually helped pay for part of my college. And it wasn't until um, getting into my first full-time engagement at Cisco where we started to look at worker wellness. And this was like really, really early applications in terms of how do you use, you know, temperature monitoring or simple you know, IoT devices that you could place in factories to make sure that um, baseline conditions were met um, for factory workers. Um, and of course, you know, the issues of, you know, worker wellness and factories, particularly in emerging economies, goes way beyond just it being hot, right? The sexual assault, not getting paid overtime. So this was just one of the mechanisms that we looked into. Um, and then, you know, after helping instantiate their IoT Trust Alliance there, I had the opportunity to lead um, and really develop the social and public sector practices at consensus. 
Um, and, and that's when it really started to get into, okay, now you have full, you know, breath to create for some of the largest NGOs in the world as to, um, you know, what use cases can feasibly be attended to by the technology. And for context, uh, what, what time period, what years was, was this that you kind of started shifting over towards consensus, doing your work with Cisco? Yeah, so that was between 2014 and, and now. So over the past six years or so. Because yeah. um, what happened to Trayvon Martin, that was, I believe, in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, about eight years ago. Um, so, yeah, it was like very shortly after that. Um, and it was really exciting too, because of course, like that's around the time that Ethereum like came out. Right. <laughs> so, oh. so this was actually the first time where you actually could make something. Well, I think that the the context is helpful because I think you're, you were right. I mean, the, the finance part of, of the cryptos was just so exciting in that time period, especially the earlier years. Um, and so a yeah. lot of people started kind of gravitating towards it. You saw a lot of on-chain solutions, but the, the underlying yeah. infrastructure hadn't been yet, um, fully baked out or developed or even adopted. And so now, you know, those of us that are, that are, uh, true believers, if you will, uh, still around, still kind of see the, the long-term arc of this and, but relatively short period of time, last six years, you know, so maybe (laughs) you, and you were a consensus too, like as, as it tried to kind of adopt this social impact lens, um, in the midst of kind of all of the nefarious conversation around cryptos, just saying like, no, 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 there are great applications for this. Like think about, think about the possibilities. What was that like for you to be a consensus during this, with this boom and this bust, if you will, like, what was that? What was that like in the last several years? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, (laughs) it was really weird because obviously a lot of these companies in their earlier days are completely financed with cryptocurrency. Right. Um, so it's unlike any other startup or organization that you're at because your organization's health is at the whims of the market, which at that time we could probably say was being manipulated by millionaires. I mean, at the time I believe a million dollar trade could like create 5% price slippage across the entire market, which is, which is crazy. Um, and, um, so that was kind of the backdrop as to the work that you could do. So we had to be really, really um, stealthy in terms of bootstrapping a lot of these solutions. So our team was really small. I mean, we had four people, uh, only two engineers. I was one of those engineers as well as, you know, taking care of a lot of our partnerships. And, you know, at the time, it was first just creating a community of major NGOs and social entrepreneurs that, one, believed that the technology could do anything because that was still uh, a huge barrier. People still had um, Silk Road, right, in their minds. And Silk Road, for those who aren't aware, is, you know, where they sell drugs, right, on the dark web or was one of the sites. Um, And really the whole profile of what cryptocurrency was, was for illicit use rather than for building. Um, So that was the first obstacle. And then, of course, the second one was to, you know, create a framework as to thinking, when do you use this technology and when do you not? Because that was also a huge barrier. People just didn't understand, like, you can't throw this term at everything to, you know, <laughs> sell $100 million in tokens or, you know, um, you know, get venture capital investment, right? Um, so after really hurdling those two obstacles, we started to get into, you know, design frameworks as to how do you quickly iterate uh, proof of concepts for, you know, major NGOs and also social enterprises. And I think 
that's when we really started getting running into, okay, these are some niche use cases that have, um, you know, potential to scale like digital identity. Well, hey, Robbie, let's take a moment and step back. Some of our audience may be unfamiliar with blockchain. So as we've been discussing it, they may, may or may not be tracking. Could you take a moment and explain what blockchain is? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the, the, the metaphor that I like to use as to you know, what blockchain is, is less technical and more functional. So, you know, imagine, you know, you, I, um, and, you know, one of our friends, you know, is in a group chat, right? And um, each of us have our own cell phone providers, right? We have our own cell phone and, you know, we're just talking about how our day went. And, you know, over the course of that conversation, that's what's something that's really, really embarrassing. And I deleted off of, you know, my phone, I throw my phone away, you know, um, disband my, my network. Um, and I try to convince the other two people in that group chat that it didn't happen. Um, but of course you all can see it. It's still on your phone, right? I can't take it away from you. And, you know, that's the immutability and trust components that you see in a blockchain, um, which is really just a list of tamper proof transactions. Um, that is driven by, you know, a whole bunch of people agreeing that those transactions actually happen. Um, and this creates an environment in which, one, we don't have to innately trust each other anymore or what we're saying to each other, right? Because we all, you know, have a mutual understanding as to what's going on or otherwise known as consensus. Um, but two, the more of us that are there, even if, you know, I went on a tirade and just went and found and threw away every phone I could find, you know, that was a part of that group chat. Um, still very low probability that I'm going to convince everybody that uh, you know, I didn't put something embarrassing in that chat, right? So the more people that are participating in that network, in that conversation, the more people there are to verify, you know, what has happened and what hasn't happened. Um, and this really, you know, creates a new dynamic in which, um, organizations, right, as well as um, people um, don't have to innately trust each other as much as they did previously, um, opening up a lot of new avenues for not only value transfer, right, when we talk about the financial aspects of blockchain and you know, sending digital payments, um, but also trustless environments in which we can um, transact with one another more confidently. Well, thank you for doing that. In a very technical space, it's always refreshing to hear uh, a simple explanation of the technology, but then also how we would use it. And so you are the founder of Emerging Impact. So can you share a little bit of what the company does and, and who you serve? Yeah, absolutely. So Emerging Impact um, empowers um, major NGOs and, and social enterprises um, to modernize financial services for uh, the disenfranchised, primarily by using blockchain uh, technology. Um, so two specific use cases that we focus on is one, uh, humanitarian aid. Um, so this is typically in the form of cash assistance, which you see a lot of nonprofit programs moving away from in-kind assistance, like providing water bottles and T-shirts to actually providing you know, vouchers or in some cases literal checks. Um, because typically beneficiaries know what they need and what they don't. Um, and the second is um, environmental finance. Um, so this is looking at these fractured but also burgeoning um, environmental commodity markets like carbon offsets and renewable energy certificates and energy saving certificates um, and seeing how can we make these markets, one, more accountable, right, so that 
they're actually measuring something that happened <laughs> and not double counting some environmental impact that probably didn't happen. Um, and then two, um, just, just easier, right? More liquid um, so that consumers not only can verify that what they're investing in actually occurred and created some environmental impact, but they can actually, you know, use it for their purposes of neutralizing their environmental, um, you know, emissions, you know, or um, trade it if they want to be on the more financial side of the market. And the vision of the company is, tell me if I get this correct, saving the world with emerging technology. What do you mean by yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. So typically the ones um, that are uh, tasked with, you know, saving the world, whether it be humanitarian aid programs or, um, you know, other social sector or public sector initiatives um, that seek to really um, upend, you know, injustice in a whole variety of ways. Typically, those organizations aren't well equipped um, when it comes to technology. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, they're they're either you know public, be it a governmental agency or you know social, and be it they're a nonprofit. And oftentimes, they don't even have any technical people um, on their teams. And if they do, it's the person that's managing their WordPress website. Um, outside of that, <laughs> um, a lot of impact around the world is um, conducted using email and Excel sheets. And particularly during times like COVID, um, but also the oncoming recession because you know, of pandemics and climate change and natural disasters, um, those tools, email and Excel, uh, aren't really fit for the job <laughs> as you know, the amount of need increases. Um, and this is where we see um, being able to combine, you know, the product design process that it's a lot of technologists go through when they're trying to create product market fit solutions um, and the methodology process which social sector and public sector organizations use when trying to gain community trust and implement some of these life-saving programs around the world. Um, and by combining those two, um, you can better empower agencies that typically don't use emerging technology to use them you know, really, really effectively. Um, and that's what we seek to do. Thanks for sharing that. It sounds like you are integral in paving the way where this technology can be most effective in a global context. So I've got a question for you. You wrote a Medium article back in February, and there was a, a comment that says, sometimes the biggest opportunity is the privilege of being present to know that an idea exists yeah. and how that idea can transform what you're passionate about. Communities of color haven't been afforded this privilege in the blockchain community. I would love to hear more about that statement. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and, and I can speak to this in a couple of ways, being you know, a founder of color and oftentimes not gaining the opportunity to be present, um, but also you know, having the privilege to often be present, <laughs> use these technologies and help others who typically aren't. Um, that a lot of people are struggling with, you know, problems that are just worsening by the day um, because of the economic context and the health and wellness context of the world. Um, but they have no idea as to what could potentially, you know, resolve that particular issue. Um, and, and this is to the context of, in, you know, the Pacific Islands, you have people literally burying money because, 
they're some of the most disaster prone areas in the world, right? And this gets worse as climate change gets worse. Um, or even, you know, people getting access to COVID stimulus aid in the United States, right? Because of how slow our um, unemployment insurance system is. Um, and in those two cases, you have somebody who's disenfranchised that oftentimes can't take a minute to learn what blockchain is or what AI is or what any of these you know tools are, let alone um, diagnose how it can map toward you know their problem. Um, and you know on the other side, you have technologists like myself who, who do have that time, um, and not only that, but have the time to understand what are the constraints that a lot of these you know other users, right, our colleagues, right, are have. Um, and this could be, you know, a lack of financial literacy, reading, writing literacy, a lack of internet connection, um, and how to not only leverage emerging technologies to make their user experience better, so they can access services that I, you know, am blessed to access every day, um, but also do so in a way that allows them to actually use it. Um, and I think one issue that comes with you know, the privilege of, you know, Silicon Valley in particular is, is that you have a lot of founders that want to create great things, right? Their heart is in the right place. Um, but their cultural intelligence as to what those constraints are isn't, right? They assume technical literacy by making mobile applications that are only on iOS, right? They're only supported by the iPhone because they see statistics saying, oh, you know, swaths of, you know, African countries have access to, um, you know, mobile phones and they just assume that that's the latest iPhone, right? Or in the same case in the Android, um, rather than understanding that typically those phones are barely, um, you know, uh, featured with um, access to data and oftentimes have very, very limited mobile application support, even though they would be considered smartphones for us maybe 10 years ago. Um, and then the second thing is, um, you know, literacy. Um, literacy is often confined to just being able to read and write um, but I think oftentimes founders don't realize that literacy extends to numerical literacy where you have users who can't even differentiate um, numerical characters. And these things are huge um, delimiters to using any technology, uh, particularly applications. Um, and thus we have this constant cycle of you know, social entrepreneurship, um, thinking in the right way in that they've identified as a very pertinent problem but building in the wrong way and that they don't really understand who their user is oftentimes because they're, you know, in another country rather than, um, in their own backyard. I, I, I love that point. And so if we zoom in and we look at one of the use cases that's constantly put before us in the industry, um, a lot of blockchain products are marketed with the phrase banking the un unbanked. However, the majority yeah. <laughs> of these blockchain projects are, you know, developed outside those economies. So do you believe in that statement? I, I don't believe in the statement that you know, like this has been something that um, I, I have disliked for quite a while. And um, I liken the, the way that finance is going to evolve, particularly in emerging markets, as to the way that people are already thinking about identity um, within a space. So, you know, for context, you know, people see um, refugee camps, you know, situations in which people can't really take documentation with them or have it stripped from them, um, you know, recurringly, and thus, 
you know, when they get to, you know, new border or new camp, they have no ID to show for and thus can't access financial services and all the other things that come with uh, an ID. Um, and thus, they have this thought process where it's like, oh, we have to create self-sovereign identity where, you know, just by nature of, of existing and being registered online, you don't have to have any physical documentation. Um, and thus, you can access some of these ID-based services uh, more easily. Um, I think the same for finance. I think there should be self-sovereign finance. Um, where you are not limited to accessing financial services because you have to go through um, a bank and that the nature of just having a bank account does not make you financially included um, because if that bank account is zero and can't afford overdraft fees and many of the costs of being banked, which is the primary reason, particularly domestically, that a lot of Americans who are unbanked remain unbanked, um, then, then you, you, you can't really do anything else other than just have that bank account, um, which really boils down to a chase, you know, login and password, and that's not very helpful. Um, I think the whole conversation around financial inclusion and banking and banks should focus less on, you know, providing people bank accounts and more on um, economic empowerment. And that um, is quite literally, you know, them being able to, one, control right, their own finances, their own assets, um, without any fee or issue or obstacle. Um, and, and the second being that they can leverage those tools and access capital reasonably. Um, and this is not to be, um, you know, prevented by a somewhat racist and very limited credit system that we have in the United States. Of course, a lot of emerging markets that we have credit systems. Uh, but then second, um, takes into consideration the cultural nuances of um, lending that isn't just, you know, within a Western context. And what I mean by that is in a lot of countries, um, you have uh, public pool lending pools um, where the KYC or the new know your client process is governed by a business person living in my village, right? <laughs> have I seen them? Do I know them to be a trustworthy person from what other people say rather than, you know, with your social security number and, and, and what's your ID number. Um, and this is something that right now, when you look at modern finance, doesn't take into account. Um, and yeah, I don't think that that's necessarily going to be governed by having a bank account in the future. I think it's going to be governed by having a financial account, but that can take many, many forms. Oh, certainly. Uh, the technology helps uh, gain access to a financial account, but there's certainly more work to do. Um, you know, thinking about the Access Ventures investment thesis, so we we want to see adoption. We believe that that's the base, just taking the last example. I'm curious, what yeah. do you think is necessary for wide-scale adoption to take place? You know, so adoption has been another term that I've struggled with in the West because particularly within the blockchain space, because mainstream adoption within the blockchain space now is really just Western adoption. That's really just, you know, European, North American adoption of any particular, you know, process. And right now, you consider the success that you have, you know, upwards of 50 or 100,000 users, right, um, for blockchain applications. Um, whereas I think really we should be focusing on you know, hyper-localized adoption to a critical mass that allows that particular, you know, community to 
um, realize whatever financial inclusion mission statement that you have, right? So what I mean by that is um, looking at taking a regional approach, you know, rather than an international one, because there are too many cultural nuances, particularly around finance, that, you know, will allow for mass adoption on the scale of millions for a single user experience. Um, their language barriers, um, you know, their, um, again, internet connectivity barriers, but then there are also uh, accessibility barriers, um, like being able to access payment gateways like MasterCard, Visa, et cetera, uh, which literally don't function in the context of the Pacific Islands at all. Um, they're not there. And because some of these countries are considered risk um, uh, countries, right, where those businesses choose not to participate. Um, but that doesn't mean that a startup, you know, building lightweight financial infrastructure like Applied in those areas between local banks wouldn't be very, very successful. Um, and so I, I think, you know, adoption is important um, as long as it's attending to, you know, those cultural nuances rather than trying to seek to, you know, make one experience for, for everyone. Um, because I've just realized, particularly using blockchain technology, that it's just not it's not feasible with the same user experience. Maybe under the same company that provides multiple experiences, um, but certainly not within just a single app, um, just because there's too many variations. I think your point about the accessibility of Visa and MasterCard in certain places, I think we take for granted that there is a risk profile and they charge different processing rates. So that can be um, prohibitive, but then also they can just decide purely to not process payments and and the ripple effect of that in a local economy. Um, Well, that's uh, I appreciate your your thoughts on that. And um, I do. I guess maybe my last question would be if you had a crystal ball five years from now, what does the space look like? Yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and to your point on in terms of um, the different payment rates, that's why I think right now, and you've seen this um, across many venture capital firms, why I think a lot of them are focused on protocol focus, because they know that one protocol can support many different use cases and applications that could reach mass adoption across many regions rather than a single decentralized application or DAP, um, you know, that could be the same. Particularly given the user experience issues in the blockchain space, it's not a space really known for great design. Um, but in terms of you know five years from now, and I'll, I'll speak you know from the social sector and public sector lens, I think um, digital cash assistance for our digital humanitarian aid will probably help over 10 to 50 million people in the span of five years um, because it is the low-hanging fruit equivalent like supply chain is within the commercial space for the social and public sectors. Um, and also, again, there, there's a sense of immediacy that we haven't seen within those two sectors because things are unfortunately getting worse. Um, you're seeing more natural disasters. Um, you're seeing more health disasters, right? Um, to think that the COVID-19 pandemic will end anytime soon and will be the only one within our lifetimes is um, an unfortunate misnomer. It probably won't be. Um, and that is an indirect result of climate change. Uh, but in addition, um, the geopolitical climate is also worsening. You're starting to see more extremist political views across multiple, um, you know, so-called developed countries, right, including the United States, 
that are really going backwards in terms of um, you know policies that you know minimize guests, right? Minimize conflict, um, and, and and of course these conflicts um, you know create refugee uh, migration situations around the world in areas in which developed country populations aren't as effective. Um, so I think humanitarian aid is going to be need to be way more efficient. And it's going to need to require uh, way less people to implement. And that's where I think blockchain is, um, you know, positioned very well. I think second to that, um, the modernization of environmental finance is going to increase because, um, one, I think government regulation is, become, is going to become more stringent as to how to prove additional impact or additive impact um, that you see. Um, you know, when people are um, generating carbon offsets, et cetera. Um, but two, um, those regulations are going to become so stringent that markets, uh, online markets, for trading a lot of these commodities are going to become imminent, right? Um, because corporations are going to try to neutralize. We've already seen a lot of goals for companies like Amazon, Apple, et cetera, to actually neutralize their environmental impact by 2025, by 2030. Um, and there's going to have to be markets to support that. And there's going to be a lot of accountability to support, um, you know, actually proving, you know, that that impact is being made. Um, you know, beyond that, when it comes to DeFi, because I know that's, you know, uh, an obsession <laughs> of, of the space. And for those who are not aware, DeFi stands for decentralized finance, so, you know, blockchain-based finance. Um, I, I do think we're going to see a lot of, you know, innovation there, but the impact that it's going to have is not going to influence anyone who didn't already have money. Um, and when I say that, probably making less than you know $100,000 USD a year, um, you know, because these, these protocols that we're seeing are very plutocratic. They allow people to make money who already have money. Um, that includes staking mechanisms on you know a blockchain level, all the way to lending mechanisms that we see on a compound or uh, you know DYDX, um, and you know. That's unfortunate um, because it limits a lot of people who don't have the technical literacy or the money to use this. If you've enjoyed today's conversation and want to learn more about Robbie's work, check out emergingimpact.com. They have loads of resources and ways to get connected on their site. As for Access Ventures, if you'd like to learn more as well about our investments and our venture strategy around blockchain and to download our white paper, go to accessventures.org blockchain. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit. If you liked what you've heard, do us a favor by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Thanks for listening.